<laughs> now you're getting into tricky territory, aren't you? Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome again to the Neurosurgery Podcast. In this week's episode, we continue our discussion on cognition and neurosurgeons and the link between the brain and the mind. So today we are absolutely um, delighted to be joined by someone who I'm secretly a fan of and have been for decades now. Uh, We have today Reese Cosgrove, who's a neurosurgeon in Boston at the Brigham. I first started following his career when I was a resident, and I was actually very interested in mood and pain and how surgeons and neurosurgery has affected that, um, going back to the Nobel Prizes by uh, Igaz Mamiz. And so I looked him up, and he was in Boston at the time, and I kind of wanted to reach out to him. And he was, I want to say, the only uh, neurosurgeon in the country that was in the modern era doing anything like mood-altering surgeries. So, Reese, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Now, Reese, I know that you are a former chair at Brown University's neurosurgery program, and you're at the Brigham now, but why don't you give us a little intro about yourself, how you got into this particular super specialized uh, field of neurosurgery? Well, it was almost by accident. Um, You know, I was trained at the Montreal Neurological Institute, uh, so I was trained to be a functional neurosurgeon meaning uh, doing surgery for epilepsy and movement disorders. And after um, my first few jobs, I was uh, recruited back to the MGH, the Mass General Hospital, to create uh, an epilepsy surgery program there. And so they had never done epilepsy surgery there, so that was the reason for going. And we created this epilepsy surgery program, and I started doing a little movement disorder surgery there as well. But at the time, uh, a guy named, uh, a neurosurgeon named Dr. Tom Ballantyne, who had been doing cingulotomies for pain and for depression and OCD for many years. And he had retired a couple of years earlier, but the institutional uh, organization and the patients were still being referred to the MGH. So the institution was continuing to do them. And so when I arrived there, Nick Zervis said to me, well, you're a functional neurosurgeon. You should take this over. And I, uh, I paused because like a lot of people, and even as a resident, I'd heard Dr. Ballantyne uh, describe his experience with cingulotomy for depression and OCD and for pain, of course. Uh, and I, I didn't really believe it. And I thought I had far too promising a career in neurosurgery to get involved with this kind of stuff. So (laughs) it was sort of, I was coerced into taking it over. And uh, um, uh, I did pause. I said, you know, well, let me just observe how you're doing it. And then I'll decide whether I, I think I want to be the neurosurgeon involved with this program. Anyway... 
They had uh, uh, monthly meetings to evaluate all the patients. There were three psychiatrists on the committee making the decisions. There was a behavioral neurologist on the committee, a recording secretary. And I thought, wow, okay, they've got this pretty, pretty well organized. And in fact, in surgery for psychiatric illness, the surgery is the easiest part. It's the evaluation of the patients and the management afterwards that is the most difficult and is not something that we're comfortable with as neurosurgeons. But anyway, so I, I uh, agreed uh, to join uh, and the, the committee and, and do the surgery. So let me get a little bit out ahead of this because most of our listeners are neurosurgeons or neurosurgeons in training, but there are probably a good number that are sort of uninitiated. And if you just rely on popular media, whether it be spine surgery or what we're talking about today, people ha- people really don't understand what we do as neurosurgeons, right? So in other words, if, if your only exposure to this is one flew over the cuckoo's nest that ended up in outlawing, uh, we're going to call it psychosurgery, right, in the state of California... Or and, and, and I was training at the time and it's still outlawed there. Or if you're watching Ratchet on Netflix, or if you're reading the Wall Street Journal four-part series discussing the Kennedy family and, and all that, I think you would not truly understand the historical context and the type of disease we're really up against. And so maybe I can ask you, Dr. Cosgrove, to give a given sort of elevated but but accessible introduction to what we're talking about. Now, remember that Dr. Cosgrove does all kinds of surgeries, right? We're, we're in, this, in this series just focusing on this very, very narrow sliver because it's so interesting and his experience is so unique in this country, probably the only neurosurgeon who's been in this area. Um, and so Dr. Cosgrove, you mentioned singulotomy, but go into a little about the kind of patients, what kind of surgeries you're doing and what they're intended to actually affect. Yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding about sur- uh, psychosurgery. And, you know, I had the same biases. I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I hated what happened to Jack Nicholson and offended by it. But, and then, you know, the, the history of psychosurgery is not well understood because people haven't delved into it properly. But you have to understand that at the turn of, this ninth, uh, at the, turn of the last century, uh, there were the two biggest public health hazards facing the country were infectious disease and psychiatric illness. And the greatest public uh, cost was housing uh, psychiatric patients because there were no effective treatments. And um, so this, you know, the story goes that uh, Egamoniz and Walter Freeman were way back in 1935 we're in London in the audience listening to John Fulton, an Oxford neurophysiologist, describing the effects of making lesions in the frontal lobe on two monkeys. And uh, because of the issues facing uh, 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 you know, the health systems in, in the world at the time, at least in the developed world, they both got the idea that they could help patients and solve a major problem by making lesions in the frontal lobe. So the original procedures by Egamonese were just injecting alcohol into the frontal lobes through burr holes. He subsequently modified that technique to use a leucotone just through burr holes and felt that there was a very uh, uh, beneficial effect on the majority of patients that they operated on. Walter Freeman had a different uh, approach, but he it, it all started, it all initiated in the same 
uh, uh, area, uh, same lecture, at least for these two, because some, some, some uh, 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 attempts have been made at altering mood prior to that, but he devised this prefrontal lobotomy with a, a different approach from a, uh, from a burr hole in the inferior frontal region. And, and so these procedures were effective, although they were associated with a lot of uh, morbidity. And subsequent to that, sort of more responsible practitioners in the, in the, uh, in the field devised different operations on the frontal lobe to have the same beneficial effect without some of the uh, cognitive and personality side effects or seizures. And so uh, everybody recognized that it was beneficial, but they were trying to reduce side effects. And so though actually the whole field of stereotactic frames and stereotactic neurosurgery was done to reliably uh, uh, create lesions in the frontal lobes for psychiatric illness. It's a little known observation. So there are a variety of different procedures that in the modern, uh, and then of course, because there was no effective treatment, the first uh, effective psychotropic medicine was chlorpromazine. And that was introduced in 1954. But uh, um, it takes a long time for a, a new medicine to be introduced, but it was an effective medicine. And so at the same time that there was a a rise in neurosurgical interventions for psychiatric disease. Now a, an effective, at least major antipsychotropic medicine was available. And so these were, um, this provided an alternative. And then, you know, you have to look at the intentions of these people. I don't think they were misguided and you have to put it into the proper historical perspective that most of the practitioners of the day were simply trying to help the suffering of, the pa of their patients. And our knowledge of the brain and the neurobiology of these diseases was pretty fun rudimentary. And uh, so it's, it's, it's very easy for us to sit here and judge from our modern day about how crude some of the techniques were. But um, the, I think if we look, honestly look back and say what was their intention was to, in general, help patients and serve their patients, um, I think we would be a little less harsh today. We should be a little less harsh today than, uh, uh, than we are. Well, Dr. Cosgrove, con considering as you described the retrospective crudity of those techniques, um, in fact, I'll, I'll take Dr. Wang's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I'll, I'll raise you The Terminal Man by Michael Crichton, one of the earliest descriptions in popular fiction and, and general literature of what we today would call deep brain stimulation. And I wonder if you could chart for us um, in the course of your career and being such an active leader in the field, the gradual refinement of these techniques from, as you said, the seemingly crude um, approaches of a lobotomy or just frontal lesions to induce docility or reduce violent aggressive behavior in patients to developing more targeted and focused um, anatomic regions for specific mood functions in the human brain. Um, there's much talk and ongoing research today in DBS for depression, for OCD, for anxiety, for eating disorders. Um, much of that has disappointed thus far. But perhaps you can talk to us about the gradual development of potential psychosurgeries for those more specific uh, behavioral 
or psychiatric issues that patients face. Yeah, so it's interesting. So when when I first joined and started doing this, um, you know, the only thing I brought to the table was modern uh, MR guided stereotactic ex- expertise. Uh, Dr. Ballantyne. Uh, did his procedures with a modified stereotactic technique. But when I started doing it, I said, the only thing I can really bring to this table is MRI guided stereotactic tech, uh, techniques. And so I said, you know, I can reproducibly make lesions in the an- in the anterior cingulate cortex in a way that is reproducible from one patient to another. The other thing I said, uh, uh, um, you know, I agreed to participate with the group was, if we're going to do this, let's do it the same way we do epilepsy surgery and movement disorder surgery. Every patient is evaluated, and then we prospectively uh, rate our outcomes, both complications and efficacy. And so, um, and we subsequently began, we did that. And what was fascinating was that, you know, in patients, the only patients we selected were these horrible patients who had failed everything else, they'd have years of disability and suffering. And there were no, they'd failed all uh, modern psychiatric treatments, pharmacological ones, behavioral ones, electroshock therapy, they'd failed. So these were, this was sort of like a Hail Mary, a palliative, a last ditch intervention. And um, what we found, and I found over the 14 years or so of doing this on a fairly regular basis, uh, really, but only uh, uh, you know, eight to ten cases a year, was that about two thirds of patients got better. They were substantially better, and but there was still the uh, 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 there was still the um, hangover effect from the early years of psychiatric surgery, and and as we began to understand some of the cortex, cortical areas in, uh, involved in some of these uh, diseases, although we still don't understand them that well, uh, at the same time that we were performing this ablative surgery, uh, we were also doing deep brain stimulation for movement disorders. And it was a natural um, transition to saying, well, since ablative surgery and movement disorders uh, works and DB, deep brain stimulation works in movement disorders, then maybe if we target the same areas that we've been lesioning, either the cingulate cortex or the anterior limb of the internal capsule or the subcolossal uh, frontal regions, then maybe we could get the same benefits without any side effects. And that's where the transition to uh, moving instead of making lesions in these. Uh, no uh, uh, circuit nodes, we began implanting electrodes into those same nodes, seeing if we could have the same beneficial effects in terms of outcome with basically limited or uh, minimal side effects. Yeah, that's a that's a good point in, in the evolution from ablative or destructive methods to sim- stimulatory, which may have the same effect, right, materially. Uh, so that you don't permanently impair the patient at least as much. That's that's an important transition in neurosurgery. But I want to back up a little bit back to when you were doing the cingulotomies and maybe help our listeners understand 
exactly what a patient even looked like. Because, you know, a lot of folks, unless you've worked inside a, a locked psych ward, they may not have any encounters of this sort or not even understand it unless you hang out with your local, I hate to say it, like this homeless population, right? Like, tell us about the, the type of impairments that you were actually treating, because we, you know, most people get it when there's a brain tumor or a spinal fracture or something like that or carpal tunnel. But but this is something a little bit different. Right. And you were working with psychiatrists and psychologists on this. Right. So and and remember, the only two indications that we did this surgery for were, were for basically major depression, treatment refractory, major depression or treatment refractory obsessive compulsive disorder not for schizophrenia, all right? And so that's where one of the huge misunderstandings is a lot of the early cases were done for patients with schizophrenia or so-called par paranoid schizophrenia. And we would not, we don't have an effective treatment for those. Uh, uh, so number one, they were limited to major depression and OCD. And the, the, the second thing we have to realize, I mean, neurosurgeons are no strangers to suffering and uh, disability, I mean, we see it all the time in many of the conditions we treat. But I can tell you, I have never seen the enduring suffering and disability uh, in any other population of patients as much as I've seen it in these. It, it was unbelievable. Um, many of these patients uh, had been uh, suffering for years. They tried everything. They just couldn't function. They were tortured. Um, but uh, they were still very often likable and lovely individuals. So it's, it's an inner psychic suffering. And, um, uh, but completely disabled with no alternatives. And, you know, we have now, uh, uh, we there's strict criteria that we used at the time and are accepted internationally what, we, what failure of therapy is. So these were, these were the last ditch uh, uh, interventions for these people. And, um, uh, um, so this is not just of people who are suffering from, uh, depression, uh, mild, moderate, or even severe. It had to be enduring suffering, uh, that was completely refractory. And the stories that I would listen to at uh, our committee meetings were just, um, just unbelievable. Uh, so anything we might be able to do to, to help them, I think would be, I thought was worthwhile as long as your intervention had no major, uh, uh, morbidity associated with it. And, uh, that's basically why when I initially started doing this, I just uh, did it the way Dr. Ballantyne did it. I chose singulotomy as, as the. Uh, uh, the safest target. And to this day, of all the targets we use in uh, psychiatric surgery, I still believe that cingulotomy is probably the safest of all the targets in terms of ablative surgery. Well, yeah. Dr. Cosgrove, um, talking about how these treatments that you offered were for patients who were suffering so deeply, um, and these were the only available treatments, I wonder if we could turn that on its head and think about some of the new and exciting technologies we hear about in the news media today, things like Neuralink coming from Elon Musk companies, where these are potential targets and potential implants not to reverse disease and not to correct profound suffering, 
but to electively, you could say, augment normal cognitive function in the human brain. Um, has any of your work touched on potentially these areas or from your perspective, working in this space for so many years, what are your thoughts on electively seeking implants and seeking targets to not correct pathology, but augment normal anatomical function? Ah, now you're getting into tricky territory, aren't you? Because this right. is an ethical consideration. And I, I think it's very different um, uh, con uh, thinking about augmenting function. Um, I mean, in our in our efforts and in my efforts, it's always to try and restore the patient's normal function, not necessarily enhance their function. So if we can restore them back to the person, a normal functioning person, that's different from augmenting uh, function. It's pretty clear that we can, uh, it's a big enough challenge to restore, uh, restore people to more normal mood. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, in my experience, what's fascinating about the ablative surgery is that even when we do the surgery, nothing happens right away. There's no change right away. So there's no early placebo effect and improvement. It's after three to six months, you start to the improvement, see the improvement because it's an unlearning of probably a, a conditioned cortical circuit, uh, brain circuit. Uh, so we don't see it. And the longer you follow these people, the better they get, which is very strange, right? That's that's counter to everything we do in medicine. And I'm uh, you re so you're restoring them slowly to more normal mood, normal functioning. And there's no such thing as a cure in psychiatric uh, surgery that I've seen in all the cases I've done. Uh, everybody still requires maintenance medications maintenance is oftentimes behavioral therapy, but the restoration of more normal function is seen in about two thirds of people in patients who had no hope of that. Otherwise. But Reese, let me, let me push back on that a little bit along John Paul's lines. And we had an early podcast recording where I talked about, you know, the kind of drug a neurosurgeon would do, if any, and it certainly wouldn't be marijuana, right? And it would be something like Adderall. And this sort of search for higher human function is 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 something that's real. And when you talk about mood, for example, there there is a continuum, right? There's a range of normal. So, you know, in medical school, everybody joked after they took Psych 101, like like uh, like you know, it'd be best to be hypomanic, right? That would be like the ultimate state to be in. And don't you think that? I mean, we we saw you know human germ cell line cloning done in China last year, right? I mean, don't you think that this is something that's coming regardless, uh, even if ethical people like yourself don't do it? I mean, the market for it is enormous, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's a slippery slope because, you know, when when we're trying to, uh, you know, at my age, when I'm trying to ski, I typically take anti-inflammatories before I ski because my knees hurt when I try and do moguls right now. So is that enhancing my performance? Yeah. I mean, top athletes take all sorts of things to enhance their performance, uh, but it's enhancing their normal performance. Um, we have to be very careful because who gets to, we know we can improve. Uh, sometimes uh, we had, I had one case where we had a horrible patient who had uh, Tourette's syndrome and with horrible head 
flicking and she had dis she had she had, her head flicking was so uh her head ticks were so severe that she would had dislocated her retina in portions and she was going blind in an eye and so she was one of the first cases we performed dbs of the anterior capsular region on. what was interesting in that woman was that and she was also a graphics designer and when we uh, we were able to uh, reduce the head ticks to mild, not cure them. But at the different settings, uh, you know, each DBS electrode has four contacts. And when uh, um, one contact was used after we, tr we were trying it for a while, her boss reported that her work had never been so good. It was so vivid, so colorful, so wonderfully imaginative. And when we changed the setting, that all disappeared. Hmm. <laughs> um, it went back to her normal. I mean, she was a good graphics design artist. So you could argue that, wow, if we can enhance creativity, uh, why wouldn't we want to do that? If we could in, in, if we can enhance memory and performance, why wouldn't we want to do that? The difficulty here, though, is that this is a surgical intervention that um, has risks associated, a lot of expense associated with it. Um, and I have trouble putting resources towards enhancing normal human function. I mean, at the expense of trying to restore normal human function in those people that are suffering. And that, that's just my bias. Well, Dr. Cosgrove, on that point exactly, uh, you are perhaps one of the most particularly interesting people I could ask this question to, and you can take this as technically as you'd like or as philosophically as you'd like, but considering everything we've been talking about today, to you, what is normal human function? Well, you know, um, if you look deeply within yourself, we are never entirely happy. We're never entirely sad. We're never entirely productive or unproductive. And um, it's those uh, ranges of both thinking, feeling, um, doing uh, are normal in our, the variability of that is normal in all of us. So trying to sustain a, um, and it's, that's our natural balance. So trying to push the set point to an unnatural balance seems counterhuman to me. Uh, the beauty of, uh, of, of human being and human beings and, and all and humanity is, is the differences in all of us. So I, I really don't think that we should be playing God in that arena and trying to uh, 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 meddle with that. Dr. Cosgrove, there are no better words to end this episode. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experience today. Thank you for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Happy to be of service. Delightful. Thank you.